Hey everybody, it's Richard Harrison, Scott Lease with another exciting episode of the Serpent Sales Podcast. Super genuinely excited about this one. It's one I've been waiting to do for a long time. Felt like I had to get some credibility um, in, in sales. Uh, in, in this podcast, we've got Nick Meta from Gainsight. Um, so Nick, welcome. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Hey, great to see you both, Richard and Scott. Thanks for having me here. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm curious, you know, the, the funny story is that I met Nick, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, right when I, right before I started. 2013, 2013. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. yeah. On an airplane. Um, yeah. And I told this story about how I, I looked at Nick and I was like, and I can't remember if you had suede shoes on or a suede blazer in jeans. <laughs> but Very possible. We were flying back from Austin and I sit next to this guy and and I'm like, this guy's got to be a startup guy. Like nobody leaves Austin on a Friday if they don't have to, unless you're like in a startup or a family or something like that. And so we started talking and we had this amazing conversation. It was a, so much fun. And we got shushed by the stewardess or the, I should say, flight attendant. Oh yeah, right. right? Good memory. Twice. Um, and it was just one of those moments. And, and the next thing I knew, I sort of had this second client of all times, um, I was using a Yahoo email address. I even remember that. So, um, so anyway, that's that's my memory of how we met, and it's a, one of my favorite stories because it does it goes to show you like you never know where you're going to be, who you're going to see, and who you're going to meet. And you know now you're now you're not just you know Nick the guy on the plane. You're like Nick made a insight guy. Yeah, you're, well, you're, you're you're Nick the guy who launched Richard's sales career. Oh, well, well, I, th I think not. Richard helped us. You helped us a lot in the early days, too. So it's yeah, a, that mutual, was a lot mutual relationship. That was a lot of fun. I'm going to go let my dog out. Scott, if you want to jump yeah. in for a second. Welcome to, yeah. welcome to podcasting 2020 COVID style. That's Absolutely. Right. Nick, I, I want to talk to you about um, bad money. And what I mean by bad money is basically bad customers and customers and prospects that salespeople and CS people, frankly, deal with that are you know unruly abusive uh you know push for like absurd discounts uh lobby for you know poor contractual terms i i wrote about this yesterday and there was an interesting uh dichotomy and it seemed to be that people who are in leadership totally understood bad money and why some customers are not good and healthy for the business and all of the kind of frontline AEs and SDRs were like, oh, sure, uh, that's just because you're not a rep with a quota to hit. So right. I want to get your perspective as somebody who's, you know, built this like whole, you know, community of customer success and all that kind of stuff. So can you, can you give me your perspective on what I've been kind of coining bad money over the last couple of days? I love the term, Scott. That's a, you, I think it's important to have a term to capture the emotion of it. Um, and I think there, there's multiple parts of quote unquote bad money, right? There's a bad money of a deal that economically isn't going to work out for the company, uh, which I think is part of what you're saying. So that could be a customer you sell that turns right away or, you know, is really high cost to serve. And there's another thing you said, which is maybe they're a good financial customer, but they actually don't treat your team well. And as somebody cares about the team, I think about that too. So I think I'll, I'll, let's unpack both those on the lifetime value economic side. I think. I think it's pretty clear and it's funny because I think we all have been in deals where we're like, yeah, we need to get this deal, but I don't know if this is going to be a good customer, you know? Um, and I think actually the reps, as they become more experienced, at least our reps, I see them saying, 
Nick, I don't think they're going to be a good customer. You know, like, so I think there's a sales a maturity thing because at the end of the day, you know, you don't want a bad customer. That's like a bad, even if you get a commission check on that deal, you know, you deal with all the headache afterwards. Is it really worth it? You know, sales isn't a one and done job, right? You're going to be at that company for a while and you're going to be dealing with the legacy of that bad deal for a while. And so I do think probably early in career, people might make that mistake of pushing the bad deal through. And I think a lot of great sales professionals learn that, you know, you want to do good deals in terms of good deals for the company. And so I, I've seen that there's a lot of learning there. I mean, it, to me, this is a part of the value of customer success is teaching sales, which customers are likely to be good customers for us, not just at the 30,000 foot level, you know, we sell to companies of a thousand employees and higher, but you know, our most successful customers have traits X, Y, and Z. I think this is a question every sales rep needs to have a good answer to, you know, what do your most successful customers have in common? Not that like, oh, they're, they're in a certain industry, but it's like, I'll do Gainsight real quick. Our most successful customers have a real business challenge they're trying to solve, not just the theoretical one. They've got a great exec sponsor driving this at the customer. They've got a hands-on person managing Gainsight day to day. They're good at change management. You know, we got a list, right? We don't want to sell people that don't have those things on the list. And then I think there's this other aspect, which is, are, are they bad money in terms of the way you treat your team? I think that's a, that's a really important one. It's subtle. And, and I, you know, it's interesting. We had a customer that um, was, you know, I think they're probably good people, but whatever reason, they were not treating our team well. Uh, I always try to think the best of other people, uh, but in this case, they were not treating our team well. And um, normally you guys know I'm a positive, try to be a nice person. I definitely stood up to that customer and told them it was unacceptable. And, we, we end up not keeping the customer, not because of that, but just in general. Um, but I think that story stuck with my team and they really appreciated it. So I do think there's this element if you're a leader of like sometimes standing up for the team in, against the customer, right? Lots of times we're standing up for the customer to your team and that's important too. But sometimes you got to stand up for your team uh, if the customer is beyond unethical or in some cases we've had customers treat uh, women in our company in a sexist way, things like that, right? That's, you got to stand up for that. How do you... How do you phrase that? Like, and, and, you know, hopefully not just in a sexist way, but like, you've just got a bad customer. They've got a bad attitude. Yeah. How, how do you as a leader, as, a, as, as someone, how do you say that? Because people are going to follow your lead, right? Your VP is going to follow, your CRO is going to follow, totally. your, VP, your director, your reps. And so it's really important. I love that you're doing it, but how do you do it in a mindful way? It's such a, I think it's such an art. And I, by the way, I don't think there's necessarily an easy way, but I'll just say that like um, last week, this actually happened not with a customer, but somebody in the, in this community for somebody we know. And um, he, he wrote an email that I thought was pretty inappropriate. Uh, and, um, but he's an important person. And so I wrote back to him and I said, Hey, you know, love everything you do. I texted him by the way. I think it's actually easier to be candid over text. I love everything you do. Are you open to some feedback? And then I said, and then obviously I did the sandwich feedback. So here's also great things you're doing. And by the way, did you know how your statement could be taken out of context? In this case, I, th I thought the statement could be interpreted to be a little bit sexist in terms of the way he said something. And I'm not going to assume that that was his intention, but that's how somebody might read it. You know, and I think that that's like, a, uh, you know, I, whenever I give people feedback, I don't assume that they're trying to be a bad person. I don't think most people are. So I try to tell them, look, I, I know you're probably not intending it this way but this is how it landed on me and it might land this way on other people. And I, and I also usually try to say, I know you're a very values driven person too. I know you care about values a lot. 
So I wanted to share this with you in the spirit of you trying to continue to aspire to values. Usually people don't say that they're not values oriented, so that typically works pretty well. But it's a hard one. I think it's important to be really thoughtful about the communication. But if you do nothing, you're sending a message too. Yeah. What, what is the best way to, to try to quantify that? You're, so you're, you just said, you know, if you do nothing, you're sending the wrong message. Like, how do you quantify sending the wrong message or, or not walking away from bad customers? Not so much on the LTV side, but more on the morale side of your team. Yeah. Right. Well, it's so interesting because I think, and I, by the way, I'm not perfect. I've definitely made lots of mistakes. And, and so, but one of the things I've noticed is people, every, if you have values or things you aspire to or culture, your employees notice every time you don't live up to those. Right. And, and actually, if you have a good culture, they hold you accountable to it. They tell you, and my employees have told me, Hey, Nick, this didn't really align with our values from my perspective or whatever. Um, so you, you carry a cost. And what I've been surprised by is people will remember that for years. They'll remember that, that thing that you didn't do, the time you didn't stand up, et cetera, for a long time. Now, where does it show up? Well, it shows up in all those things on the margin. Like, you know, the employee then gets a call from a job and, you know, a recruiter and it's a pretty good job. You know, it's not life changing, but they're a little more open minded to it because, you know, they're not sure, gain, you know, this company's living up to the values anymore. Or I think it also shows up in the sales pitch tying to your, your audience's input, right? Like, we all know that a rep's confidence has a huge impact on the effectiveness of the sales pitch. So if the rep believes in the company and the culture and the values, they're going to have a better sales pitch. There's no doubt about it. And so I, I think that there's an, there's an impact on sales. Can you quantify it? No way. There's no way you could quantify it. But what I would say is it's probably, if you could quantify, it might be bigger than almost everything else. Yeah. yeah. How do you, I mean, I, I knew you, you know, we said earlier, I knew you early. And I remember walking into the original office and, you know, you had your three principles up on the wall, right? Um, yeah. The golden rule. Um, what were the other, I can't remember, like now I'm blanking. Success for all and Success childlike joy. And yeah. then we had two childlike more that we joy. added later. And, yeah. that, and that's yeah. the one I've, I've always gravitated to. I remember the, except in this moment, the childlike joy all the time. And I notice it in my kids when I see it and I try to capture that moment, right? That's when you were there and there were, you know, 15 of you. And I, and I remember, you know, we did some fun things. We, you did like a Jeopardy game and it was, you know, it was cool. Like you were doing all that stuff. Now that you've scaled, right? Now that you are and continue to grow, how do you still keep the childlike joy? Well, I think a big thing of values have to be that they aren't, if they're good values, they're ones that are personal to the leader and therefore you don't have to keep it. It is actually natural, right? So I think to me, values are things that you like, you actually want to happen, not things that you're read in a blog post and you should do. Um, so the values we came up with were the ones were like, no, that's just, that's how, that's how I roll, right? As the kids would say, that's what, that's just what I do. So that means that it shows up every single day. Like literally there's no, forcing it. It shows up not just for me, but others. Like for me, it shows up as, okay, every time I'm doing something, let me put myself out there and put, you know, we did a conference last week and I, we did a country music video opening and we did our, I put a cowboy hat on for the opening, but it shows up like in everyone, every, when we do presentations, everyone includes like an icebreaker where they do a photo of something in their life that's outside of work, a childlike joy moment. We, every webinar we do, we ask the, the customers to talk about something that's a childlike joy moment in their life. Every dinner we've ever done, we have an opener to talk about something childlike joy in their life. Everywhere we've done seven and a half years, 
like if you did a shot every time you heard childlike joy, you'd be drink by, drunk by like 9 a.m. every day, um, which would also be create some childlike joy, by the way. Um, but uh, <laughs> until but about we, in the afternoon, childlike tantruming. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But we basically it can't be something that you have to do that you should do that you you're forced to do. It has to be something you want to do. And honestly, it's just the way that I like to live. And so our values, all five, there are five of them now have been very personal to me and therefore it's much easier for us to actually make them reality. I think the challenge companies have is a CEO says, oh, I'm supposed to have values. Let me go Google some other companies' values. Customer focused, we win, number one, integrity. You know, And it's like, nobody ever woke up and said, those, those are things I care about. That's just what you read about. What do you care about? It could, by the way, it could, I, I went to see, um, the CEO, former CEO of ServiceNow, who now runs Snowflake. And um, he's, a, he's a legendary CEO, really, really famous guy, Frank Slootman. And somebody asked him, you know, what were your values at ServiceNow? And he said, you know, we were, his direct quote was something like, we, we didn't really have like explicit values because we were too focused on just winning. And what I liked about that was it was super honest. Like everyone that I know that worked at ServiceNow is like, yeah, we were just a performance culture. There's no like one story in the wall and a different story in reality. The way to kill your culture is to have one story on your wall and a different story in, in the actual conference room, you know? Yeah, yeah. I you're, like that. Go ahead. You, uh, one would have a difficult time arguing that you are the godfather of customer success. <laughs> what I want to know, though, is what are the differences? Like Burnsley from, from, from I know. Simpsons, right? I thought you were going to say, not, at least I'm not the grandfather. So godfather is good. I like Godfather. That. I chose that word carefully. Um, what are the differences in the CS community versus the sales community? We talk about that like every single day. It's so interesting. And I'd love to hear your perspective too, by the way, because you guys see the mirror image. Um, I think that first of all, there, it's not probably a black and white difference in that there's certainly lots of CSMs that used to be in sales. And there are probably some CSMs that went into sales, right? There's been this kind of cross-pollination. And we all- merging a little bit, yeah. Yeah. And we all know also that CSM and sales at the end of the day have a similar mission, which is we want to help our customers and grow with them and you know, grow our revenue. And so it's not like um, a black and white situation, but there's differences. You know, you, I think in general in CSM, you find, you know, people that are, they, they, they may have a little bit more of a long-term orientation because they're not on that quarterly quota, which is so hard. Right. And the quarterly quota is, is like, I, I always tell people, don't criticize sales. So you carried a bag yourself. It's a hard job. Right. And I think that the CSM, by the nature of the job, has a bit more ability to look out in the future, and that changes their psychology a little bit of what they're doing. I think by nature, you're working with people more deeply, typically, um, versus sales. Obviously, you kind of have an episodic relationship with customers. You might come in and out. And therefore, I think CSMs might end up building a little more of that deeper empathy, it's purely just from a human perspective. You, you're on a call with somebody every week for a year. You're going to get to know them pretty well. Um, I think CSMs also um, end up, uh, the they, they, the opportunity for them is actually to learn from their sales colleagues about being a little more assertive. You know, sometimes they can be a little more like, how do I serve you? And a little less, here's what I recommend you do. So we always tell people CSMs need to be more brave. There's a lot of things they can learn from sales, to be honest. And I think salespeople can learn from CSM too. Um, I think in common, the, yeah, go ahead, sorry. No, I was, I was, I was thinking more, even along the lines of um, just like the, the communities that get together. So you've got sales communities like, let's say, you know, on, on LinkedIn, 
or or on oh, yeah. or on bravado or now you know max uh, just launched the sales hacker kind of community right are, are there similar communities like that where where csms and people in customer success are are gathering and and sharing knowledge and asking each other questions and learning from each other and all that or is this just like a purely sales and marketing world where where people like you know maybe maybe we have bigger egos and so we're out there like touting our stuff and putting our you know thoughts out there more and, and what have you i i asked this question because i couldn't i couldn't right now say well, here's the top five uh thought leaders in customer success to go follow and pay attention to right yeah yeah there, 500 in sales so i'm, I'm curious if, yeah i don't know I'm just I, I think there, i think there no there there actually is for sure there is definitely the, the top 10, 20, 50, 100 thought leaders in customer success, no doubt about that. Um, I think the community is smaller just mathematically, so there's probably fewer that you might think of top of mind, but there actually are out there. In terms of the venues, I, I agree the sales community is a little further along in the venues. There, there is an active LinkedIn kind of community for customer success. There's a few different ones actually on LinkedIn that are pretty reasonably active. Um, I think there is a, like, you know, not to toot our own horn, but the Pulse conference that we do every year ends up creating a ton of community for CS. And that's probably the biggest event people go to, to, to talk and stuff like that and connect. There's a lot of local uh, meetups. So we actually created this thing in partnership with local leaders called Pulse Local, where people run communities in probably about 30 cities worldwide at this point, where they get together and do meetups. There's other meetups that are unrelated to Gainsight, other people organizing them. So there are like kind of meetups at the CSM level out there. And then in terms of leaders and like kind of the, what you would think of the sales, the, the kind of prominent sales influencers, there's definitely a list of like CS influencers you consistently see online that are writing, you know, blogs and, and, you know, uh, you know, uh, write books and stuff, not just our book. I mean, there's other books out there now. So I think there's a, there's a lot. It's not, if you just said order magnitude, it's, it's probably one tenth the size of the sales community simply because I think there's still about 10 times as many salespeople as CSMs in the world. So you, one of the things I notice about CSMs uh, and the customer success persons, I often think that the customer success person is better at selling than even the salesperson is in so many yeah. cases, right? And by nature, the customer success role is more of an active listening role, right? Um, even though we say it should be in sales. I'm just curious, do you see that? Do you see customer success driving the sales process a little bit more these days than it used to? Yeah. I mean, if you just thought about it, you know, before, obviously all the sales process had to be driven by the salesperson. So, you know, percentage wise, clearly CS people have gotten more involved in that. And I think you're right, Richard, there's some of them out there that just by their nature are so good at like uh, listening to the customer, but also pushing them forward. I don't think just listening and doing what they want is enough, right? You got to listen and then challenge them just like you guys talk about all the time in sales, right? And so I think there's CSMs who have that art really nailed down and frankly then make the salesperson's job a lot easier because the sales much more set up. I can think of even in Gainsight, that type of situation. But I can also think of CSMs who have their blinders on and are just thinking about how do I solve the problem that the customer has now and they're not thinking about pushing it forward and the salesperson is kind of adding that push. Um, I think the best, I've, what I believe is in the future, what you're going to have is these partnerships, the CSM and the salesperson, and they together are forming this great like combination of serving a client and moving them forward. And they might even know how to play off of each other, just like a great sales rep and SE. You know, you think about a great sales rep, what's the division of labor between sales rep and SE? It varies a lot based on the company and the, 
the team and all that. But what I can say for sure is a sales rep and SE complete each other's sentences, right? They know how to work with each other. That's true for great sales and CS as well. Yeah, it's interesting as I'm sitting here thinking about it, um, you know, not only did you help spawn the, the, you know, as the godfather of customer success, in some ways you're, you, I could even see you as the godfather of, of the revenue team, right? The, the chief revenue officer, because, because the customer success team came in, just like every other place, it was a little bit of silo, right? Back in the day. And now there's like, you know, I want customer success on the phone almost as much as I want a sales engineer. Right. Yeah. Like, totally. <laughs> like there, there is that piece. So in some ways you're, you, you built two industries, not just one. Um, <laughs> so, so, I, I, I do, th I think that thanks for the kind words. I definitely don't think I can take credit for that part, but, but I think you're right. The triangle of rap SC and, and CSM and, and I, I totally agree with you. Like one of the most compelling things in the world is you're on a prospect call and you're like, let me bring on the CSM who worked with the company in your space. Right? right. Like that's like way more compelling than doing the PowerPoint, you know, slide deck. Right. How do you, how do you guys see that? Cause you know, the, the revenue team is now sort of the new, that's the new black this yeah. year. Right. Um, and how do you guys, cause you are a customer, I mean, you're customer driven. I wouldn't say you're customer success only. You're customer driven to an yeah. infinite degree. How are you guys overlaying that revenue ops, revenue team? Um, or, or have you done something different? And we, we haven't had to go there because we were built this in a certain way. No, no, we've, we've had to do just like, you know, the cobbler's children always need shoes too. So we've had to go through all these learnings ourselves. And I think one thing we had early on was more your classic, you know, sales team going and doing sales and your CS team and they work together, but it wasn't that tightly integrated. And this year we implemented what I think a lot of companies have done, which is kind of more of a pod model where you have, you know, not, not, not for all of our accounts, but for the accounts we think can grow. Um, the ones that have the most expansion potential, you know, you got a rep and an S and a CSM and an SE and we're doing account reviews together and we've got a plan and, you know, we're, we've aligned the plan for success for the client, what we call a success plan and gain site with the account plan of to grow the client and you're reviewing both of those. And, and then we created a motion for reviewing those plans as a management team. So, you know, we have a cadence of, you know, we, every, every week we review two of those plans for two different accounts. I, we've, I, we've had to go through the same stuff. You know, I think everyone has, and I think that's real. It, the good thing is you figure out how to work together, not just at the theoretical level, not just like sales and CS, but you figure out how are, you know, uh, TK, who's a sales rep at Gainsight and Trish, who's a CSM at Gainsight, how are TK and Trish going to work together? Sales and CS is very theoretical. TK and Trish is very specific, you know? And so that's what it's forced us to figure it out at that lower level. Um, so, so here's the billion dollar question, right? Who, who owns the cross sell and the upsell sales team or customer? Yeah. <laughs> Everybody, I get that question all the time. Right. And, and my answer oh, yeah. is, it's, it's, well, it depends, but I'm curious. Depends. What, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's yeah, not, no, it's, totally. Um, it, give, give a good answer, Richard. Yeah, it, 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 it depends. But I think there's a framework you can use to answer it, which is um, at the end of the day, like upsell, cross-sell, as you guys know better than anyone, it's such a like smorgasbord of a lot of different things, you know, Hey, can I get one more license? Cause I hired another person on my team. That's like one kind of upsell. Another one is going to sell to a different division of, of your client. Another one is selling a new module, blah, blah, blah. We all know that. It's, it's kind of weird that we almost lump it all together. It's actually a whole bunch of different things. So what I've found in general is that um, on one extreme, the activity is more like demand fulfillment, right? Like, can I get another license? And then 
Uh, on the other extreme is like more true selling, you know, new business unit, sell new product, et cetera. And in between is things like, you know, can I pull forward some demand? Can I do a ramped contract? Can I you know, renegotiate something? Can I, you know, th there's stuff in kind of a gradient, right? And what I'm, I, what I'm seeing is over time, people would love to have the stuff that is more demand fulfillment oriented done with fewer people at a lower cost structure. And like, you know, that could be the CSM. Um, so I think like private equity backed companies typically are the most forward leaning on efficiency, as you, as you guys know, probably work with, with some of them as clients. Some of those companies are saying small, C, small upsells, you know, license add-ons, et cetera. CSM does it on their own, right? Um, but nobody that I've met says new business unit, brand new module, million dollar deal, CSM's doing. That's like clearly sales, you know? And so what I think over time is going to happen is every year as an industry, we're going to take one more step towards, hey, could a CSM sell you know, to a slightly different persona without bringing sales in? Or could they sell this like add-on upgrade thing that's not that different, right? Um, so I think we'll keep moving a little bit just to get more efficient. But there's always that net new stuff that I think sales does really, really well. One of the things that is a burning question right now for every sales leader out there is, how the hell do we protect ourselves and, and last longer than 15 to 18 months in our, uh, in yeah. our head of sales role, right? Um, my last three roles as a SVP of sales, my average tenure was 33 or 34 months, which is like double, double the average, right? But what, what is going on there in your, in your estimation? You're, you're a founder, you've had a couple sales leaders in there. What are the things that you, if you're willing to go here, what are a couple of mistakes that you made in sort of managing or handling a sales leader? And what are maybe one or two things that you think are crucial to getting that, that sales hire, that sales leadership hire correct that will allow you, you to work together for longer than this, you know, 18 month kind of average? You're supposed to ask me questions that I have good answers to. So I, I, I'm going to go out and live on this one. So, um, no, this is a great question, Scott. Every CEO talks about it all the time. And it's kind of, it's funny. It is a, a bit of a joke of what, not just sales leaders, by the way, other roles too, but it's kind of like the, if you watch Harry Potter, it's like the defense against the dark arts teacher every year or two, it ro rotates out to somebody new. And it's just, I, I do think that the, I don't think it's actually usually the issue with the leader. I think honestly, it's, it's the company not figuring out what they need is the, is the, if I just gave the headline, that's the headline, right? Um, it, it, I'll tell you a game side story. And we've had all of the people we've had are great people and done really well and I'd recommend them. But we basically had like our first era, actually when Richard uh, met me, uh, we had a guy uh, at Gainsight uh, who did an amazing job and kind of getting us to that you know, zero to you know, double digit millions of ARR. And then we had another person come in uh, who kind of had a you know, sort of next, next level experience and we did a search and he did a, a good job as well. And then, then we actually went to a third person at some point that we promoted internally who did an amazing job. And so we kind of been through a few different iterations. So you totally, I've got all the scars and all that to, to prove it. I think that as I reflect on it, the first per, first role, like we really nailed it because the guy that was there in the early days, he was not just the sales leader. He was just a you know, salesperson, right? Like just like you guys have been like on the phones and you know, lead from the front and, and, you know, a big mistake, a lot of CEOs make it hire somebody that's, you know, too far along to that first job. And, and, and I think that's an important thing. I think also what I've learned is 
application software sale versus infrastructure sale versus like developers. So they're pretty different. And so you probably want to hire somebody who is at least familiar with that type of a sales model. Because I think like if you come from an infrastructure tech kind of sale world, you're selling like boxes or your storage or whatever, uh, you know, convincing people on like the business problem, you don't have to do that, right? Like you don't actually have to do, you have to convince them why this technology versus others. That's also a hard job. These jobs are equally hard, but totally different. And so our stuff is like early days, especially with super evangelical sales cycle, like not just like why gain side, it's like, why custom, what's customer success? Why customer success? Help me find a leader for customer success. Oh, come to my conference. Okay, how do I design my playbooks? And eventually dot, 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 dot by software, right? And so I think the wrong people would not be successful in that kind of business. And so understanding your type of business and what you need, like, I, like I'm even thinking about this as we go forward of like, you know, there's, there's people that have really good experience in big deals. Like if maybe your company is one where it's the million dollar sale. You know, you, you guys have worked with people who do that type of sale. And then, or maybe your company is the one with the $10,000 in, optimized inside sales organization. Or maybe your company is the one that's much more bottoms up where people install it and all that. I, I do think that when you're bringing in that experience leader, their experience shapes their mindset. So, you know, if you've been in, a, in, in success and you've been successful selling million dollar deals, everything looks like a billion dollar deal to you. But if that's your career, then everything, now you may jump into a business where there's no potential to do million dollar deals. And that's a lack of executive market fit, right? It's kind of like product market fit. It's executive market fit. So I think the most important thing is what is your real market? What's your motion? If you're going to hire an experienced person, they better be experienced in that motion. Because all of us know how smart, no matter how smart we are, we get used to what we do. And we just like everything we see looks like that thing. So that's my biggest learning. Okay. So, so we're trying to get uh, executive market kind of fit, right? So yep. now let's say that, and this is actually true for me, like I've been a head of sales six times. All of the times were sort of zero to 20, 25 million ARR. Like that's what I'm there to do. It's going to take me two to three years. I'm going to get you to 20 to 25 ARR. You're going to be worth, you know, I've had companies worth low nine figures to three quarters of a billion in terms of the value. Nice the valuation in three years right but so so i'm like i'm executive market fit for the early stage right now explain to me if i'm there for that particular reason and purpose why i should have a four-year vesting period when it's not going <laughs> to it's not going to take me four years to get to this particular spot that we sort of are mutually agreeing upon that we need to get to because if i get you to 25 million arr and i've been there call it three years Either you, this is my experience, so you can disagree with me. Either you, Nick, or your investors are gonna be like, we need to top Scott off. We need to find somebody who's gone to 100 million or who's gone IPO, and you know he's done all right, but like, let's fucking kick him to the curb. And now, I, and I don't have four years vest. So we had this conversation with, with Max Altshuler, and he was like, we should have stage appropriate vesting. Like, if your job is to get the company to 20 million ARR, like, you should have you know, whatever agreed upon percentage that is, you should fully vest once you've kind of done that. I'm very curious to hear your take upon this now that I've got you into this corner. <laughs> I, I uh, luckily we're well past that. So whatever I say won't apply to my company. This is great. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, um, you, you I, did perfectly. 
I actually honestly think you, you ask an awesome question, Scott. I mean, broadly, I, having been, you know, running companies and doing startups and stuff for like 20 years, the whole stock option thing is not actually aligned with the reality in, in general for so many different reasons from the you know, kind of the way businesses are built now, obviously how long it takes to go public. And your one is totally, you nailed it. I think experienced executives being totally candid, they negotiate around things like that, whether it turn, whether the way they get to it is accelerated vesting or, you know, if they get terminated, there's like an acceleration or whatever. I do think that the experienced execs in lots of roles realize that there is a kind of shelf life and maybe they'll go past that shelf life, but odds are they won't, as you said. Um, I think that's a great point. I definitely a good one. I don't think people negotiate enough around their stock in general uh, when you're an executive. I mean, it's hard to do as an individual contributor, but as an executive, people don't negotiate enough around their stock. I, I, I find that people don't negotiate because they don't know anything about. The they don't know. Totally. Don't, I mean, I, 100%. I, had con- I had a conversation with a, a fairly well-known VP of sales um, maybe a year ago. And, you know, he kind of in passing, like told me how many shares he had and what it was probably going to be worth. And I was like appalled, shocked and appalled at how small the number was. And he said, well, what do you have? And I told him what I had. And he was like, dear God, you know, so I, I, I think yeah. I, there's not, there's not enough education there. And it feels sometimes like the, the system or the machine or the man or what have you is perpetuating that totally that, that ignorance. And we don't want to pass that knowledge on down. So I, I'm, I've been asking questions and I hope you don't mind me speaking up about this because, you know, I, no, I love it. It's great. Of, of what I'm trying to do right now is try to help salespeople and sales leaders out there learn about this stuff and maybe learn what questions to ask and, and feel empowered to, I don't want to say push back, but at least, you know, know what to know what to ask for. They can at least know to ask. I think right. that's the important thing. And I think it's, it's, um, sitting here listening to the way you described it, Scott, because I've heard you say it a bunch. It, and I certainly do not want to speak for somebody, but it sounds similar to what I've heard about women in careers. Nobody's yeah, yeah. taught them how to negotiate a salary or they've been pushed into a corner by the machine that, well, if I ask, now it's going to change their perception of me kind of a thing. And it, it emotionally it feels like that to me as I, as I was hearing this conversation. I don't know if that's real or fair, but that's what it was sounding like. Um, so, so what is next? You know, how are you guys even handling, you know, how do you guys see the next, I don't know, 2020 and 2021, right? Like this COVID things fucked us all up. Right. Um, in a lot of ways, it's been really important for you because everybody needs to protect their revenue right? Like you need to, you know, your renewals are far more important now than they were six months ago. And so that's good for you because it's like, we kind of knew, I kind of know that's important. Now I really know. <laughs> so how are totally. you guys seeing it? Even two, from two, two perspectives, one sort of externally, as you see the economy in the world, but two, how does Gainsight manage through this as yourself as an organization? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, um, anyone that's, uh, ask me what 2021 is going to be like, I'd be like, I don't know what t- next week is going to be like. So I think that the visibility is pretty low in general uh, for all of us. Second thing I would say is it is a pretty challenging time for everyone. But I would say um, I feel super privileged that like the problems we're dealing with are nothing compared to so many people that, you know, their health problems and they're losing their jobs. And so we're, we absolutely truly have first world problems here. Uh, in, in this world, I think that what we're seeing is exactly what you said, Richard, which is 
that long term, this is the wake up call that every company probably knew they'd eventually get, which is recurring revenue, uh, with, you know, what we think of with SaaS and cloud and all that, uh, only, only recurs if you make sure to pay attention to it. It doesn't just happen by, by default, right? People kind of took all their existing revenue for granted, all their existing customers for granted, focused on new sales. And that's sort of like what happens in a boom market. And as there's a downturn, people realize, whoa, if we don't keep these customers, we'll like literally not make payroll, we'll run out of, run out of money, you know? And so I, I have a, a friend who's a CEO of a venture back kind of late stage private company. I emailed him just was like, I think I, I sent him a note saying, hey, how's, what are you guys doing for COVID? What's changing, blah, blah, blah. And he wrote back and said, uh, we're finally doubling down on customer success. And I finally understand like our, you know, expectations, the renewal rates and forecast and all that stuff. And he said, this is what I should have done all along, but we're finally doing it and feels really good. Uh, and it's interesting because I think there's no CEO who's like, oh, I shouldn't really pay attention to my customers. I shouldn't focus on customer success. You couldn't possibly be against that, right? But it's a lot, it's a lot like other things you couldn't be against. You couldn't, in, the, in theory, you couldn't be against healthcare or education or whatever, but in practice, people don't prioritize them, right? That's, that's how we get to where we're at as, as a world. Very similar here where, in theory, everyone was for customers. In practice, they didn't prioritize that area. Now they're doing it. I'll, I'll share an interesting anecdote. I have a, we have an advisory board of our top you know, customers and it's like the mostly public companies and basically these like chief customer officers at these companies, but 30 companies. I had them on a Zoom call two weeks ago and I asked them lots of questions. You know, um, are they getting more focus and resources? Everyone said yes, like bigger priority than ever. And then I asked them, what's, what's the thing people ask them to do more of? Like, what are they focused more on and what are they doing less on? Right. Pretty basic question. More of was all the things you'd imagine, you know, better risk management of their base. Uh, better understanding of upsell, you know, better tech touch, things like that. Less of, there was only one response, less having to explain to my CEO why customer success matters <laughs> than everyone else kind of bust out laughing because that's like the reality is now you don't have to explain anymore. So I think that for SaaS in general, this, um, actually I was, I was on a call today with a research analyst at uh, Credit Suisse and he said 2020 um, is the year of the installed base for software companies. It's the year where you focus on your customer. I thought that's a good, great, simple way to say it. Um, and I think what that means is for our business at Gainsight, you know, we're seeing our product usage totally skyrocket. Like, you know, it went up 50% right away when the downturn happened because everyone's just managing their customers more with Gainsight. And, you know, so that, that was immediate. And we're getting lots of people saying this is just like critical for us. Um, and so long-term, we think, you know, our pipeline has exploded. All that stuff's been great. We had 22,000 people at our Pulse event last week. Um, short term, we have the same thing everyone does, which is despite all that, selling anything new when you have totally uh, uh, ambiguous decision making processes in companies, it's definitely more, it's harder, right? So even though we have a lot of pipeline and all that, things slow down because every company says before you needed to get the approval of the CIO, now you need the COO, the CEO, the CFO, probably the Pope, depending on religion. You know, you need you need every every level of approval to get a deal done. And I, I think for a lot of salespeople listening, it's it's a time when you you kind of there's a lot of uncertainty about timing and forecasting and all that. So we have the same stuff there that most people do. But long term we think it's you know probably a big positive for our company because people are going to be more focused on their customers. How have you guys maintained your childlike joy internally, right? Aside, you know, I mean I, I know it's a Zoom meeting and I know it's you know the but yeah. Have you, have you found any ways to do, you know, uh, yeah. mystery games online or, you know, like. 
we've done it all. Honestly, that's an area we kind of round, you know, whatever you, whatever your culture is, it shows up when times are tough. So like on March, you know, 16th or something like the first day of shelter in place, we had, you know, our dogs on the, and, and cats and stuff on zoom for like a pet, pet show thing. And then we did a kid talent show and then we did, we've done, done Pictionary, done all these games, all the things. And by the way, a lot of people have done these now. Um, so it's not, not super surprising, but we found lots of ways to really connect with each other and also new things. As an example, we were watching our um, Pulse virtual conference last week and, you know, everyone's on, everyone's watching it and they're all, they have the screen, maybe they have it on their TV and they've got their computer. And, and then we had a Slack channel and it just was hilarious and completely blew up and people are, you know, kind of teasing each other and putting up GIFs of like what their reactions are. And, and so I think there's new ways to bond than you never had before. So that's what I keep telling my team is psychologically, if you focus on what we lost, it's hard. Like we all lost a lot. We lost the ability to get, you know, to give you guys a high five or have a beer with you or whatever. Focus on what we gained. We gained the ability to talk to more people than ever. We gained the ability to have all of our customers bring their entire teams to Pulse. We gained the ability to connect with people all around the world in our company. We gained the ability for the introverts to participate just as much as the extroverts through Slack or whatever, right? So I really try to focus on what are the things that are the positives coming out of this as much as possible. That being said, what are, what are the business things that are keeping you up at night right now? What, what, are, what, are the, what are the, what are the, what are the I can't believe Scott are. just asked that question. Oh why, would I, why would I not? What keeps you up at night, Nick? Come yeah. on. No, the, the, the yeah, reason, I know exactly. The reason I ask is because I think Nick is one of the more transparent, uh, you know, CEOs out there. And it's, and to me has always been just, he's just Nick. Like there's no, there's no face no filter. ask or what have you. Right. And, and that, that level of uh, vulnerability and access, I think is super important in, in humanizing, not just him, but also, also the company. And so, you know, Nick is always like seemingly cool, calm, collected. And I know that somewhere in there, the like, wheels are turning there's some shit that's stressing him 100%. Out. Sure. i want your son to come back over your son's in the room i want to ask him what what dad nick is like right <laughs> oh yeah yeah actually we have a lot of fun to get he's playing fortnite over in the corner uh, for the folks listening so the um so scott answered your question directly there there's a, a few things i think by the way most ceos probably have these things on their mind so it's, i think it's quite common one is you know sales process is totally different and slowed down and it's a lot longer cycles, but our pipeline has really grown a lot. Yeah. So how long till that all processes that way through, that's like the number one question people have, which effectively means how long do you see that uptick in sales from all this pent up demand? And is that, is that Q2? Is that Q3? Is that Q4? That's the, that is one of the huge questions. I think the second question is, um, you know, will we have a second, you know, closure uh and then will that basically be another like downturn in the economy and like you know and that's why i think a lot of ceos right now are pretty hesitant about hiring a lot of people because you know don't know what's going to happen in, in sort of that next phase that's where there's some psychology there you think that's why so many companies and ceos have kind of made a definitive decision like we're not going back to the office till 2021 so like let's let's eliminate yeah. that from you know as a stressor as a thought process whatsoever Right. I think that's a good, I think that's a good point, Scott. Like, I mean, I think intellectually they're saying, Hey, there's not an ROI to going back to the office. Why do we need to do it? But I think it is also take something off the table. I think that's a really good point. I think it's easy. There's too many variables and you have to take some of them off the table. I think that that is probably part of it. And so that, so to me, it's, 
Question number one is when the sales processes start going back to normal. Question number two is, will we have a second closure? And then question number three is, I think a lot of us in general, like in life, but also as financial stewards, we want to increase value. Like we want to grow shareholder value. We want to grow our valuation, all those kinds of things. We're in a weird world right now. Like in, in one way, like the NASDAQ SaaS valuations are the highest they've ever been. And then in another way, the world is like 30 million in America, 30 million unemployed or whatever the number is. It probably has gone up since I, since I looked at the news. And so are, are we all increasing value right now? Are, are we treading water? It's, it's, you don't know which way is up right now. So I think it's actually a very confusing time, which keeps people up at night too, to know like, is this all great or not? I mean, honestly, yeah, I think for a lot of people, you, can, you probably appreciate the fact that you talk to one person who's a total optimist and you're like, this is going to be great. And then you go talk to your other friend who's the total bear. And you're like, oh my God, I better buy emergency supplies for the garage because we're going to have a, you know, uh, you know it's going to be the end of the world. And it, I think that emotional roller coaster keeps everyone up at night, including CEOs. How do you, how do you as a human, because Scott's right, like you, you are that sort of internal optimist. How do you navigate those kind of emotions, whether it's, the economy, the business, your family, your friend, like every, we, we all know people who are affected by this, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I think the three of us are very fortunate that it's, we are not in a world that a lot of world of hurt that people are in. So how do you as a human even just sort of manage through that a little bit? Oh, totally. I think, I think it's been a journey, you know, it's only been about two months since the shelter in place started, which is crazy to think it's only been two months. And I think it's been a journey for me to sort of my own processing around that. I think one thing has been, I am naturally a very positive person and I have to be balanced that with also realizing not everyone's going to be feeling great all the time. And so I've tried to be open with my team that look, yeah, I'm all excited, but I also know you may not be feeling great sometimes. And I told them it's okay to not feel okay sometimes. And like I shared some stories about challenges we've had as well. And so try to be not just purely positive, but be a little bit empathetic as well. That's like tip number one. For me, for my own management, like I gotta say, um, super simple thing. I the first week or two of the crisis, I would be that person with the phone at night reading the COVID news before I went to sleep. That is oh, the yeah. worst thing you could yeah. do. Guilty. I, so Guilty we, as well. Yeah, we all we yeah. all we all do it. So so what we do now, which I I gotta say is like one of the most important things in my life. I my phone. We have two two stories at our house. My phone's plugged in downstairs. I go upstairs. I go. I, I read a physical paperback or you know physical book before bed, you know. And so I gotta say, there's some some uh, benefit from that, and just not being so obsessed about the news because I don't. You know, such a roller coaster there, and I, it's not like I'm gaining anything. So for me, for my own management, that's been good. And then the last thing I'd say is super tactical. Again, you know, with all of these Zoom calls and all this stuff that we all do sitting in a chair, I yeah, I'm a huge now proponent, and I do it every day of walking a lot. So I do a lot of calls just on the phone without a video. And so I try to walk at least 10,000 steps a day. And like some, one day I got to 25,000. One day I was like 15,000. And I public, and I, every day I, I do a Slack post to the team of like what, you know, my daily kind of diary. And like, I post the last thing I put in that post is what my steps were with the encouragement that like, Hey, I'm trying to take care of myself. You should too. You, you, they don't need to go walking, but they should find some way to kind of make themselves healthy. Before we, before we get to the, uh, the end of the show here, I want to ask you a really serious question. There's three AFC fan bases represented on this particular 
Uh-oh, I did not get the briefing here. Yeah, so, you know, Richard Richard is a Denver Broncos fan. You're a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. In the AFC, I'm a Buffalo Bills fan. So Okay, all right, as long as, as, long as it's not the Patriots, we're good. Yeah. Oh, we're all united in hating the Patriots. So my, my very serious question is, let's just assume that there's a football season. What is, which of our three teams are you predicting is going to have the better season in 2020 slash 2021? Well, see, I'm, again, worst person to ask because every year in the summer, I buy a ticket for the Steelers to win the Super Bowl. <laughs> and I, and I've, been, I've, I've been right twice in my lifetime. And so, yeah. Uh, so, yeah I've ever been right. Right. At least you're consistent and you're loyal. Like, that, that's I'm very, very consistent. Very consistent. No, I, I don't know. It's such a wild card with the Steelers because it's all depending on Ben Roethlisberger's arm. If, if he comes back well, then we could have a shot. So I guess it is nice to have a to imagine no Tom Brady in the in the AFC this year. So sure that's going to be interesting. It sure is. Yeah. Sure is. <laughs> totally, totally agree. So, um, so, so we that, that brings us to our last question, which is, you know, how can how can we help Nick? How can we help you? Is there is there anything that you need advice on or? Um, if there's a cause you're supporting because of everything that's happening in COVID, like I, I know you're a positive, yeah, I'll share. but everybody could use a, a helping hand every now and then. Totally. Yeah. And I think all of us uh, as humans are trying to find ways to help, whether it's tipping people more, or, you know, trying to pre-buy stuff from restaurants. And so one super small way we've tried to help is that customer success is a fast growing job. As most people listening to this know, it's one of the fastest growing jobs in the world. And a lot of companies are still hiring CSMs right now. It's actually really interesting to see, how much of that hiring is still going on. So we, we have this training program on training on how to be a CSM called Pulse Plus. And we normally charge for it because we sell it to companies and all that. We made that free for job seekers. If you go to our website, you can find it. And so if you know anyone that was in a, you know, the hospitality industry, restaurants, you know, people that have good service skills, maybe they want to retrain to get into the tech world, tell them to take this class. And then we've got a job board of people hiring. And, you know, it's still, it's still hard to get into tech, but I hope this is in a small way kind of helps them, uh, you know, find their next thing. That's great. Can you tell, tell everybody about your uh, customer success book that you've got on the table there as well before we get out here? Yeah. And, and, yeah, actually, that's, uh, thanks for the problem because actually we have two now. So we have, this is the original one, uh, Customer Success, the blue book. It was become actually quite popular in this, wor this little world of CS and a lot of people read it. I think we sold about 60,000 copies or more. Um, and we have the, the new book that just came out literally on Tuesday called Customer Success Economy, which is kind of the follow on to this. And it's about um, how customer success is going beyond just the tech industry, but also how it's going beyond just the CSM function. So it talks about, Richard, you know, who should do expansion, CSM or sales. It talks about who owns renewals. It talks about how marketing should be involved. So that's called Customer Success Economy. You can check it out on Amazon and uh, look forward to your feedback. Yeah, that's awesome. I I was looking over here at the side. I'm in my son's room. Obviously, this is not my room. Um, you know, I, I sleep in the top bunk. My wife gets the bottom bunk, right? Um, <laughs> uh, is that you? I had the kids' book. I was like, oh, I should have grabbed that kids' book to hold up for you because when you oh, when that's awesome. That's good. We, we good memories. It. As as we've gone through the the multiple years of spring cleaning, there you know. Can we get rid of them? I'm like, no, we can't get rid of this. These were my second client. I love it, dude. Book, so, uh, that's awesome, man. That's great. This has been I really gotta hop in a, hop in a minute. But th thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, thanks a lot, Nick. Appreciate you spending some time with us, man. Yeah, and by, and by all means, just as a reminder to folks, please, um, if you know someone or you are affected and 
you're interested in learning something. Maybe you even want to take the course just to have a better sense of sales from a customer success point of view. Uh, Gainsight's doing something really awesome by by just giving you the training for free. And um, that means a lot. That, that says a lot about, again, back to, to Nick and his culture. So, yeah. Nick, thanks so much, man. We thanks, really, guys. really appreciate it. Cheers, man. Really appreciate it. Great stuff, guys. Thanks so much. See ya.